Despite relative calm on Israel's northern border with Lebanon, tensions are quietly rising. Lebanon is the home base of Hezbollah, a Lebanese political party and Shia militant group designated as a terrorist organization by the United States, the Arab League, and Israel, among others. Israel views the Iranian-funded Hezbollah as one of the most acute threats in the region. Israel has maintained a set of unwritten rules with Hezbollah as neither party wants open conflict. Presently, these rules are being challenged as Hezbollah ramps up its project to convert rockets into precision-guided munitions that can hit every town of Israel with high accuracy. Complicating matters, Lebanon is suffering a dire economic crisis, exacerbated by the August 2020 Beirut port explosion and a lack of stable governance. Can Israel halt the proliferation of the precision-guided munitions in Lebanon without escalating into war? What are Israel's options for dealing with the enemy Hezbollah, which is functioning as a state within a state in Lebanon? The government of Lebanon doesn't have a say in what Hezbollah does. 30% of Lebanese are destitute. That explosion destroyed half of Beirut. There was zero accountability. Zero accountability. Hezbollah opened Lebanon to Palestinian organization, Hamas, to launch rockets to hit Israel. Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. My name is David Makovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute, and I'm excited to go on this journey examining Israel's tough policy decisions with you. We begin with that breaking news. Israel is accusing Hezbollah of launching what it's calling an infiltration attempt on its border with Lebanon. Hezbollah is an anti-Israel, anti-American organization founded during the Lebanese Civil War by way of Iranian funding to attack Israeli soldiers in southern Lebanon. Hezbollah's ideology stems from the radical Shiism of Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini. Hezbollah has a dual role, operating both within and outside of the Lebanese socio-political system. The group represents the Lebanese Shia population in parliament and provides social services the government is unable to provide, such as education and health care. South Lebanon is almost exclusively governed by Hezbollah, and Hezbollah often acts aggressively towards Israel despite opposition from the Lebanese government. Hezbollah's influence has only grown as a result of the 2019 Lebanese financial crisis. The Lebanon-Israel relationship has a rocky history. In the aftermath of the 1982 war between Israel and Lebanon when Israel wanted to halt Palestinian rockets firing on Israeli towns, Iran began providing backing for the formation of a Shia group dedicated to supporting the Islamic Revolution and also expelling Israel from its southern buffer to protect against future rocket fire. Hezbollah was boosted when Israel withdrew after an 18-year-old war of attrition around that border in the year 2000. July 2006, Israel entered southern Lebanon in response to Hezbollah's kidnapping of two Israeli soldiers. However, the war ended inconclusively, bolstering Hezbollah's image. 
Today, Hezbollah has a massive stockpile of rockets. Some put that stockpile at 150,000 conventional rockets, more than 10 times the number Hezbollah possessed at the 2006 war. Hezbollah's PGM project has the potential to be even more dangerous than the conventional weapons. Compared with conventional rockets, the PGMs can target specific sites such as Israeli military bases, desalination plants, airports, apartment complexes, hospitals, the Knesset, and any number of critical sites. Hezbollah's PGM program is directly supported by Iran, and Iran sees Hezbollah as a weapon in their proxy war against Israel. Iran is concerned that Israel may hit its own nuclear program inside Iran, and therefore they see Hezbollah as a way of a second strike to hit Israel anywhere. As of 2018, Iran financed Hezbollah with $700 million annually and has provided Hezbollah with both experienced personnel and material for its precision-guided program. I have great pleasure in welcoming His Excellency Benjamin Netanyahu. I invite him to address the General Assembly. In Lebanon, in Lebanon, Iran is directing Hezbollah to build secret sites, to convert inaccurate projectiles into precision-guided missiles, missiles that can target deep inside Israel within an accuracy of 10 meters. With Israel stating unambiguously that it will not tolerate the production of the precision-guided program inside of Lebanon, could the delicate balance between Israel and Hezbollah be headed for rupture? Despite growing tension, no direct conflict has occurred. War in Lebanon amid an economic crisis is dangerous territory for Hezbollah, which is also helping Iran in other of its hot spots across the Middle East. Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, fears that bringing Lebanese civilians into conflict with Israel would severely weaken Hezbollah's standing economically, socially, and politically. Surprisingly, Hezbollah has refused to attack Israel on behalf of Iran after the assassination by the U.S. of its revolutionary guard commander, General Qasem Soleimani. Israel, meanwhile, is following a similar course, desperately trying to avoid a direct conflict with Hezbollah while limiting its production of precision-guided munitions. So, given Lebanon's economic collapse, what are the implications on domestic governments and regional stability? How does this conflict affect Israel? To discuss this further, I'm delighted to be joined by Hanin Radar, Dave Schenker, and Amos Gilad, Hanin Radar is the Friedman Fellow at the Washington Institute Program on Arab Politics, where she focuses on Shia politics throughout the Levant. Prior to the Washington Institute, she served as the long-standing managing editor of Lebanon's Now News website, where she shed light on the evolution of Hezbollah in Lebanon's political system and Iran's growing influence throughout the region. David Schenker is the Toby Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute. David served as the Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Affairs at the State Department in 2018 through January 2021. Amos Gilad dedicated most of his military career to military intelligence. As Chief of the Intelligence Research and Analysis Division, Amos Gilad was responsible for producing Israel's National Intelligence Assessment, 
apart from ongoing analysis. Currently, he teaches security and intelligence studies at Herzliya's IDC Lauder School of Government, Diplomacy, and Strategy. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to see you. Hi. Thank you, David, uh, for having me. Thank you for doing this. I know I'm in good hands with such really great experts on Lebanon. Um, okay, so look, it seems that there's a split-screen reality when it comes to Israel and Lebanon. On one hand, Israel and Lebanon have not engaged in major hostilities since 2006. This is already 15 years ago, not a small amount of time. Yet Hezbollah is said to have 140,000, 150,000 rockets, as it is trying to convert some of these rockets into smart missiles, thanks to a precision-guided munitions PGM program that is driven by Iran that can hit any place in Israel with a high level of accuracy. How do you explain this dual reality? Mutual deterrence? Hezbollah is deterred by Israel and Israel is deterred by Hezbollah? Maybe I'll start with you, Hanin. Yes, there is kind of a deterrence that has been established uh, 15 years ago in a way uh, that both parties are not interested in a war right now. And for Hezbollah, if you think about how Hezbollah's mindset today is, they feel that because of their internal challenges, financial and regional role challenges and the death of Soleimani uh, and, and everything that has been happening in the past few years. That's the Iranian general who has led the precision-guided yes, missile exactly. program. Exactly. Qasem exactly. Right. So these challenges have put Hezbollah in a position where going into a new war with Israel is not favorable now, and Iran understands that. So they realize that the threat of their weapons is actually more effective at this point than their weapons themselves. If you think about it, if they go to a war with Israel today, they do not have the ability to restock their weaponry. They do not have the money to compensate for the people in, in Lebanon or for, for their own soldiers. And they do not have the money to actually pay for this war or uh, rebuild, uh, not necessarily just Lebanon, but their own infrastructure. Second the problem with that is that Hezbollah is... Uh, regional role has stretched it in the region to the extent that their fighting force itself has shifted drastically. Today, with especially with their involvement in Syria, Hezbollah has lost many generals, many commanders, many uh, seasonal and veterans in a way that their new fighting force has not been this, uh, uh, trained enough. They are not as disciplined. They are not as ideological. And they definitely are more sectarian than religious. So they have a real challenge within their fighting force that they really need to rebuild their fighting force to, to face these challenges. And without the money and without the time and with everything that is happening in Lebanon and the region, they still need to address this issue before they go to the war. And Dave, how do you see it? Yeah, this has been an ongoing issue for some time. The Hezbollah has been highly committed to upgrading its arsenal. And this PGM program is serious. It did not bet at all with the killing of Soleimani. Israel is very concerned. They, they call this a red line. Hezbollah is preparing for the next war. But of course, uh, they've been in another war for the, best, for the better part of uh, the past decade in Syria, uh, helping to Assad regime to stay in power and 
participating in the killing of some half a million, mostly Sunni Muslims. But while they have this increasing capacity and capabilities, there is, as always, um, you know, a very real threat of miscalculation. Nasrella said it uh, back in 2006, had I known that this was going to cause a war, I wouldn't have done it. And yet you see, even now, um, Hezbollah sending drones over Israel uh, that are being shot down, um, and a very real concern in Israel uh, that Hezbollah will try and retaliate for the killing of a um, Hezbollah in Syria. Nobody wants another war. It will be so much more costly than last time. But as as, uh, Hanin said, you know, the last war was extremely expensive for Lebanon. Iran rebuilt a lot of that. Qatar uh, and other Arab states uh, committed funds. Uh, It's not certain that they would do so this time. Likewise, and I would just add that uh, Hezbollah is not in the position it was in in 2006 after basically helping uh, to perpetrate what resembles a genocide of Sunni Muslims uh, in Syria. Uh, the community is also suffering from the economic downturn in Lebanon, the crisis. You know, they may not be welcome, you know, everywhere. Nobody's looking for a war right now. In Lebanon, there is some kind of mutual deterrence, but it's misleading. This Mutual deterrence is vis-a-vis using the power against Israel. They are not daring, the Hezbollah, they are not daring to attack Israel because they are concerned about the retaliation. As long as they are focusing on building up uh, the capabilities, it looks like they are deterred to use their force against Israel. But that's misleading because they want to prepare strategic blow against Israel. And uh, we have got some writing on the wall during our last confrontation with Hamas. Hezbollah opened uh, Lebanon to Palestinian organization to launch rockets in limited way to the area of Haifa. That's some kind of signal. And Iran launched armed UAV uh, to hit Israel. That could uh, lead very easily and quickly to deterioration. So we have got simulation. Now where is Lebanon? Lebanon, the Republic of Lebanon, officially does not exist. And we need to add to it unprecedented economic crisis in Lebanon. I think they are very close to collapse. Many citizens don't have, uh, they they cannot uh, live. Dave, I'll start with you on this one, on, on Nasrallah himself, the leader of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah. Does he call the shots or does he just fire the shots? It's an open question about whether Nasrallah is his own man. Uh, I know my, my colleague at the Washington Institute, Mehdi Khalaji, uh, likes to quote Nasrallah saying that uh, if Ali Khamenei told me to divorce my wife, I would, <laughs> right? Um, so they take orders from, from Tehran. You know, at the same time, uh, he has interests that diverge from uh, Iran. I think that there is a concern that there are certain things that Nasrallah feels he has to do, venge the killing of his Hezbollahis, whether it is proportionate or disproportionate response. There is a, a need uh, that he may feel to demonstrate that they are the Mokawama, that they are the resistance. I do think that Nasrallah embodies exactly the goals of the Iranian revolution and the Iranian Islamic uh, Republic, because he's devoted to the idea to be able to destroy Israel one day. He is financed massively and heavily by Iran. 
Ideologically, he belongs to Iran, but he is not puppet. He is independent. Unless, for example, Iran gets attacked by, by Israel, for example, if the Iranians do order him to attack, I think he will attack Israel. And if they are able, and uh, we will do our best to prevent it, they want to build two fronts against Israel with the depths of Iraq and Iran. The relation between Hezbollah, represented by Nasrallah himself and others, uh, and Iran has also changed gradually. At the beginning, the Iranians, through Imad Maghniye and eventually Hassan Nasrallah, gave uh, uh, Hezbollah more leeway to take decisions in Lebanon, not because they actually can decide, but because they realized that Hezbollah as a Lebanese uh, people, they understand Lebanon and the region and Arab culture more than the Iranians themselves. So they were considered more of a advisors. And their opinion, uh, whether it's Ahmad Mughni or Hassan Nasrallah, were taken very seriously by the Supreme Leader and the IRGC. That shrank with uh, Qasem Soleimani's hands-on approach in the region uh, in the past 10 years. He became one of the people who actually decide everything. Then, and, and without, without uh, Mughni and, and Mustafa Badreddin, he had no one else to trust. So he really became the decision maker. Today, with the loss of Qasem Soleimani, Hezbollah is trying to rebuild this relationship with Iran in terms of we know the place better. But the problem is that they cannot replace these people. They don't have really anyone in terms of uh, a, a military commander and someone. Hassan Nasrallah himself became the only person in Hezbollah who can actually play this role. But this role also has changed with uh, Hezbollah's challenges and the fact that they haven't won a war in the past 15 years. They've been in Syria for so long and they still haven't won the war. And this has really uh, shed a very dark and, and the complicated layer on Hezbollah's relationship with, with Iran. That being said, Iran is, at the end of the day, the IRGC are the decision makers. So when you say if Hassan Nasrallah has, be, has become a predictable enemy for Israel, he is predictable, but he's not really the decision maker here to, to focusing on Hassan Nasrallah himself as a decision maker, whether he will decide whether his decisions are predictable. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. You have to look at Iran's priorities in the region. But the, the Hassan Nasrallah himself is still a very important figure for Iran in the sense that despite all the challenges and many, many Shia today feeling that their relationship with Hezbollah itself is changing. Hassan Nasrallah today is the actual leader and president in Lebanon. And people really see that. The economic collapse in Lebanon, the inflation, the unemployment, and everything that people are going through today in Lebanon, they see that Hezbollah is no longer the opposition. They are the authority. And this is actually making Hezbollah's position within Lebanon and within the Shia community a little bit more complicated. So many people are speaking out against Hezbollah as the authority, as someone who is actually responsible for uh, the current situation and collapse in Lebanon. Since Soleimani's death, his autonomy has increased, but that doesn't mean he's independent. Mm. But Iran is still, the, let's say, the final decider. Yes. But he's got more room to maneuver at the margins in a way that he had, that had shrunk as Soleimani became more dominant. Yes. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So he's trying to take advantage of this room of maneuver until they find a different situation. But the problem for Nasrallah today is that he is facing multiple challenges in the region, from Lebanon to Syria, Iraq, and Yemen, and all the region, without the resources. So even though he has more, larger margin, the challenges are overwhelming. So if you were to prioritize for Nasrallah and say, of all the challenges he faces... Mm-hmm. Where does Israel fit into his priority list? Israel for Nasrallah today is really just the rhetoric and the narrative in order to keep this resistance rhetoric alive because they see it disintegrating and dying every day within the Shia community and Lebanon in general and the region as well. He realizes that for many people in Lebanon, including the Shia community, that they realized in 2019 that the enemy is actually within and Hezbollah is the authority and Hezbollah is responsible for smuggling subsidized goods from Lebanon. Amos, do you think that the Iranians view Hezbollah in more ideological terms or when it comes to Israel, they see it in much more cold, calculating realpolitik terms, which is their job to exist is to make sure that it's a second strike on Israel. Israel hits Iran, Hezbollah hits Israel. It's combination. That's the essence of the answer. It's combination. If you ask me, it's combination of vision, of religious, of resources, combination of tech, tactics and strategy. And I don't think, I mean, if we attack Iran and uh, Iran orders Hezbollah to support them, they will support them. In spite of being independent the way you have just described. Okay, so over to you, Dave. So this PGM program, this Precision Guided Missions program uh, to convert, you know, like dumb rockets into smart missiles, you know, that could hit any place in Israel. So Israel's going to take that really seriously. But how does Israel deal with this PGM threat, you know, and avert a risk of war, either with Hezbollah or with Iran? After all, Iran has a PGM program in Syria, too. Yeah, David, this is Israel's quandary. When I got into the government and the Trump administration in June 2019, uh, this was top on Israel's agenda. And they've come up with all kinds of ideas and ways to, to pressure Lebanon politically. Um, but, of course, the government of Lebanon doesn't have a say in what Hezbollah does. This is a question of how much Israel can withstand. And if at a certain point they have defined this, as I said earlier, as a red line, if the red line is crossed, uh, they will have to take steps, perhaps militarily, to try and roll this back. Uh, They haven't done so to date, uh, but sooner or later, uh, depending on how much of a threat they view it, um, they will uh, be compelled to take some type of direct action. Okay, Hanin, you mentioned uh, earlier about, you know, how the economic collapse in in Lebanon has really hurt Hezbollah's standing there. And of course, we all witnessed this horrific explosion of the Beirut port in August 2020 in, in the middle of a crowded city, the great fury that was kind of unleashed at Hezbollah in its aftermath. Uh, more of the focus than ever before on Hezbollah as the model of a state within a state that's sure to fail. So if you had to look at Hezbollah's standing in Lebanon, the fact that people are are, are no longer bashful about uh, on going on social media 
and and criticizing Hezbollah for all of Lebanon's problems or many of its problems. How far does it go? Or does people just say Hezbollah is a fact of life? There's nothing we can do. It's all Iran and we're stuck. And, uh, you know, that that fury ultimately subsides. Or do you think it could still grow? And can it be decisive in any way? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's very timely because this is exactly where the people are today in Lebanon, how what what questions they're asking themselves, right? So in 2019, there was a really uh, interesting sense of hope in the streets that that everybody felt that people want to change. They managed to uh, oust Hariri's government. He resigned. 2019 was really cross-sectarian, and it wasn't centered in Beirut. It was all over Lebanon. So the sense of hope, the sense of change, the real shift in terms of how people responded to the street and how people participated was very new, very original, and it captured people's attention. What happened since then really changed this kind of perception, not just the ability to change the the perception of the international community and perception of the Lebanese towards their own uh, abilities, in the sense that Hariri, today he's back as the designate prime minister, as if nothing has happened. He resigned, now he's coming back. But also, meanwhile, in addition to the pandemic that also hit Lebanon hard, and the economic collapse where people actually realize that they have lost everything. They lost their savings in the banks. They lost their jobs. They lost, they lost their homes. And then the Beirut explosion happened. Breaking news from Lebanon. The capital, Beirut, has been hit by a massive explosion. Dozens of people are said to be injured, and there are some reports of people trapped under... Prior to the blast, dozens of bags of fireworks were being stored in the same warehouse as that stockpile of ammonium nitrate, which acts as an accelerant in a fire. The huge blast at the port sent shockwaves across the city, destroying many buildings and blowing out windows several miles Investigators in Beirut, Lebanon, are working to find out if Tuesday's gigantic explosion was caused by negligence. It not only destroyed half of Beirut, it actually destroyed whatever hope left. That explosion was very significant in the sense that no matter what happens, something worse happens. There was zero accountability, zero accountability. And no one in the international community really came and forced the the Lebanese government to, to hold anyone responsible. The focus today is how Hariri is going to form a new government and how this new government could implement reform or not, which is good in a way that reforms are still on the table. But the problem is that the Lebanese realized that no matter what happened to them, no matter really who's responsible, there's zero accountability. So that changed the sense in the street. However, there is a coming one chance, and I think one hope for the Lebanese people today is uh, the May 2022 parliamentary elections. So they feel that they have one year to organize themselves to come up with um, an alternative. If I want to divide them in a a very sharp uh, way, it's 
there is one group that is very much focused on economy and reform and not on the political uh, angle and Hezbollah's responsibility because they feel that they can't change that. And there's another group of civil society actors who are actually looking at the elephant in the room in the in the eyes and saying you are responsible that is hezbollah the international community needs to look at lebanon especially through the french who are very much involved and say the elections might be a good uh, chance to change things and to help the lebanese but they have to happen on time and they have to be transparent and they have to be actually democratic Amos, how much, how much do you think that it really bothered Hezbollah, the fury of the Lebanese people against Hezbollah? It's your fault. We're sick of you and the anger towards them. Oh, they absolutely care about their legitimacy. Legitimacy is very important for Hezbollah because it's part of their power. What they want is to empty the sovereign country of Lebanon in order to control it. But for that, they need... To achieve it, they need to get the, the legitimacy. So how they are doing it? They are represented in the government. Can you imagine? Terror organization represented in government? They do have leverage on president of Lebanon. They are paralyzing the Lebanese army, but they don't want to replace it. The, the Lebanese army does have American weapons. They never touch it because they want to keep the legitimacy. They do bother about the impact of the, this accident or incident in Beirut. That's why they have done their best to contain any violent demonstrations against them. They do care a lot. So just to follow that one thing up, so therefore, is the United States correct in trying to provide aid to the Lebanese armed forces as a potential counterweight to Hezbollah? We used to argue with the United States, either it was the Republican administration or Democratic. There, there is traditional policy. We need to keep what we can keep. It cannot weaken Hezbollah. The Hezbollah is bypassing them. They are ignoring Hezbollah, ignoring the government of Lebanon. I think the policy of the United States is not successful, and they know it. However, what can be done? Uh, first of all, we need in the whole world not to distinguish between political Hezbollah and military and terror Hezbollah. It's the same organ. What is the difference between Nasrallah as a leader of political Hezbollah and Nasrallah as a leader of terror? He kidnapped Israeli soldiers, the Iranians and Hezbollah kidnapped American soldiers. What is the difference? They are the same. Terror is terror. So we can weaken them. It's not done because of political reasons. It's a perception that if you weaken them too much, Hezbollah will take over completely. I don't think there will be any change, whether it comes from Republican president or Democratic president. It's traditional, deeply built in in the American perception. Let me talk about the maritime border. Dave, when you were uh, leading uh, the Middle East Bureau of the State Department, known as Near East Affairs. You devoted effort on trying to delineate this maritime border between Israel and Lebanon. It's not a, just a merely legalistic issue for our listeners, uh, because this would enable Lebanon to pump eastern Mediterranean gas, like Israel does. And with Lebanon in, this, in the throes of this economic collapse, as, as Hanin has said, um, you would think that pumping gas would be something that would be popular 
with the people at large, even though Hezbollah doesn't want people to have revenue sources maybe outside of themselves. So what is the problem? We started these border negotiations, the maritime border negotiations, with the Israeli delegation and the Lebanese delegation sitting across the table from each other in Nakora back in, uh, well, early 2020, I guess. And, um, you know, we had hoped at the time that we'd be able to find some sort of compromise between these lines that had been laid out uh, and filed with the United Nations more than a decade ago. There's a little Israeli island called Dechelet, which is, um, I don't know, less than a mile offshore. And it's Israeli. Nobody debates that. And the question really is how much weight you give that when as a, a piece of Israeli territory, uh, as you define the border. Amazingly, the Lebanese, in their maximalist demand, didn't give Dechelet any weight. But uh, as you said, this is a country with negative reserves in the central bank. They 50% of the people now are under the poverty line. Nearly 30% of Lebanese are destitute. The World Bank is providing, you know, 200 $50 million for a year-long program to feed 180,000 families in Lebanon. They are in rough shape. And the second they start drilling and exploring on their southernmost you know, on the border um, with Israel, but the second they start exploring, it's going to be seven years until they get a molecule of natural gas um, out of the ground. And this is free money. And it's amazing, but not inconsistent with the way the government of Lebanon has long operated, and it's consistent with uh, what happened with with the port blast. Uh, the Lebanese political elite have no regard for the well-being of the Lebanese people. Uh, whether this is Hezbollah that doesn't want to determine a border with Israel because that might undercut their raison d'etre, um, or whether it's because of other Lebanese politicians who are worried they're not going to get their corruption share, um, I don't know well, what the reason is, but it's uh, it's really a shame. If we zoom out, and maybe this is part of all the turmoil in, in Lebanon, Hanin, but, you know, if, if you're Lebanese and you're watching this, is that Israel is normalizing ties with advanced Gulf states like the United Arab Emirates, and they are engaging in deals on artificial intelligence and other high-tech sectors, and yet, you know, the patron of Lebanon is Iran, and you have a country that looks sadly like a failed state right now. Does that lead Lebanese to question, you know, are, are we on the wrong side here? It's not just Lebanon. If you look at Le Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, everywhere where Iran is entrenched is the same story. So people are realizing in all of the region, not just Lebanon, that Iran actually is a military force is the IRGC that has no socioeconomic vision for any country where they go because they don't care. Finally, people have starting, are starting to, de to see this. And they're realizing also that the region is shifting with these uh, uh, agreements with Israel and people opening up. And at the same time that actually Israel is not the main enemy for them anymore. That doesn't mean that they are ready for the Lebanese people are ready for a peace agreement today because at the end of the day, Hezbollah is still there. But the moment this is not an obstacle, I think the Lebanese people will be very happy to follow suit. Do we want war? This, 
and basically we lose everything, sacrifice ourselves for something that we don't understand anymore, or do we want peace where we actually can start rebuilding Lebanon, rebuilding actually state institutions, civil society, bringing back this private sector middle class? The choice is very clear and it's very sharp. And I think a lot of Lebanese are starting to realize that it's not actually a choice anymore. It's very clear that everybody wants peace. No one wants more war anymore. It's a process. So this is not saying that the Lebanese are happy today to sign a peace agreement with Israel tomorrow, but it has started. And it's interesting, and I think it's amazing that it's really uh, uh, grounds up. It's not top down. I'm not as optimistic as Hanin. I travel to Lebanon frequently. This is a place with incredible joie de vivre. Uh, they have a uh, the vast majority of Lebanese have this great culture of life. Um, they reject Hezbollah's culture of death and martyrdom. They are not highly ideological. They want to live their lives. They want to enjoy their lives. They are Western-oriented. Um, they don't believe in all this nonsense. And I think they see what's happening in the region where Arab states like the Emirates, like Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Riyadh, Sudan, Morocco, that these states are rejecting antiquated ideologies. I think the Lebanese people wish uh, their government and their state would do so. But the problem is ultimately in economically difficult times, uh, stressful times, the Lebanese have consistently gone back to sectarianism, embraced their sort of tribes whether uh, whether it's uh, their political parties, uh, whether it's their religious groups, this uh, you know has led uh, at one point to you know a very long civil war, um, and uh, I think a lot of these tendencies still persist, notwithstanding the fact that a huge portion of the population is fed up. We heard different perspectives today about the role of Hezbollah in Lebanon. It's clearly facing much more pressure domestically due to the economic collapse, due to the explosion of the Beirut port and the like. More and more people are questioning its tactics. And so the question is, will this really limit Hezbollah? We definitely heard how they're facing all these other problems in the Middle East because they're trying to assist the Iranians. And this issue of fighting with Israel might not be as prominent as it was. And yes, it has more autonomy for decision-making after the death of, of Qasem Soleimani. But more and more, the public realizes a state within the state does not work. And therefore, people want to question about Hezbollah's role going forward. Uh, is it being held hostage? Is the whole country being held hostage by Hezbollah? This is a debate that was once unthinkable to be held in Lebanon that is now more thinkable. Does that mean it will be decisive in eliminating Hezbollah's role? This is a whole different story. But something is going on in Lebanon, and it could be a race between questioning of Hezbollah's role within Lebanon and the Precision Guided Munitions Program, which is done to accurately target every city in Israel. This is the race inside Lebanon that all of us will be following in the time ahead. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. 
I hope you join us for all of Season 3. Please go to your favorite podcast app to rate, review, and subscribe to Decision Points. And tell your friends. I also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible, our coordinator, Sheridan Cole, and our researcher, Alex Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute. And finally, Richard Myron and Lindsay Riley, our production team at Earshot Strategies. Thank you all.